Earlier this week, I um, happened to see a church sign um, over the Internet, and it read that we can't worship the child in the manger while turning our backs on the child at the border. That was a um, unfortunate uh, sign, and there are so many problems with that sign. I could probably go on and on about that. But even this idea of worshiping the child in the manger kind of caught my eye because we're not really worshiping the child in the manger. That's not who Jesus is right now, is he? And by the way, childs don't stay in mangers. Babies are in mangers. Children are outside of mangers, so that's another whole issue in of itself, but uh, I, I digress. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we worship the Lord regardless of the circumstances that are around us. The circumstances, our circumstances do not dictate whether we worship God or not. And this kind of statement here, ill-advised as it is, it's obviously making a political statement. It's obviously saying that there are certain political um, activities that we must be engaged in before we can worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And to that, I would completely and wholeheartedly disagree. You know, not to mention that the narrative that they're pushing um, is not a narrative that I believe to be true as well. And some of you guys know that being um, Border Patrol agents yourself and close friends with Border Patrol agents. But what this illustrates is that in this country and really around the world, we have an issue of understanding who Jesus Christ is, who the true Lord is. In fact, I saw another article from a socialist nation, a communist nation, which I won't name, but you can probably guess, who has uh, taken the move this past week to say that they're going to rewrite the Bible in order for it to be able to push uh, socialist ideas in it. And already in this country, the state-sanctioned churches have pictures of these country's leaders and, and the country's ruling party so that they would be worshipped and not God. And so we have this epidemic, and while we've been going through Ephesians, and I've been emphasizing the importance of unity, I've been emphasizing the importance that we all must stick together, we all must bond together, we all must be in community, we all must love one another and display to the world that we belong to Christ by our love one for one another. That love is not without conditions. That love and that unity is supposed to be rooted in truth. And that's what we're learning as we go through Ephesians, that while Paul is placing this huge emphasis upon the unity of the body, it is also vitally important that we know what it is that we believe. Because we are be to be united with those that affirm the core truths of our faith. We worship the true Lord Jesus Christ. We don't worship a false representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't worship alongside with other people that accept a false gospel or a rewritten Bible that does not truly proclaim the truths of God. And so this is important because as we know from our own working world, if you're in the corporate world, if you play on sports, you, you know how important it is to have an identified leader who's giving directions. You know, there's a lot of rebellion today against having so-called so leaders or managers or, or someone who's identified as a boss. But having one person who is providing all the directions is vitally important. We need to know who it is we're following. We know, need to know who it is who's giving us the directions. But a false understanding of who that person is can divide us. And so this morning, as we continue in Ephesians, this is part three of a series that I have titled, The Unity Christ Came to Establish. 
And this is appropriate for the season as we've been talking about the reason for the season and Jesus uh, being the reason why we should really celebrate Christmas. I really wanted us to take a look at Ephesians and see that Jesus Christ didn't merely just come to be that baby in the manger. He came in order that he would live the perfect life and die for our sins and in dying for our sins, establishing his church that would be united in oneness with one another. So our purpose, which is a continuation of what I preached a couple of weeks ago, is to examine this sevenfold basis of unity that Paul provides us out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. This sevenfold basis of unity that all believers share that leads to Christ-honoring unity within the church. And we had covered the first three, three realities Let's take a look and we'll read through these scriptures together and then we'll take a look at those first three realities that we covered before. But starting in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6, you can either follow in your Bible or you can look at the slides uh, in front of you if um, you're able to read it. But starting in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6, in verse 1 we have the central command in all of Ephesians. Remember, the first three chapters is a large focus from Paul on theology, and especially on the theology of our salvation, of theology of our redemption. And then in chapter 4, he starts with the commands, and this is the central command to the entire book of Ephesians, which is this. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we see this opening to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called starts with this focus upon unity, upon being one with one another. And then starting in verse 7, Paul is going to now emphasize diversity. So while we have unity, there is also diversity, starting with the diverse gifts that's given to us by Christ. Verse 7 reads, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And then starting in verse 11, he talks about some very specific gifts that Christ gave to the church. In verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So all these positions, all these gifts that he gave to the church is in order to build up the church. It's in order to grow the church. It's in order to mature us. And then here is the result from verses 14 through 16. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him 
who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this is all one section in which Paul starts off with the way that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to preserve the unity of the body. And so this entire section from verse 1 to 16 is building on that idea of unity. Now, going back once again to verse 1, let me just review what we had learned two weeks ago when, um, actually three weeks ago when I first started this. You may remember from verses 1 to 3, again, verse 1, we see that central command. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling. To walk in a manner that is worthy of your salvation. And to walk is not a literal walk, but it's how you live your life. It's how you behave. And then verse 2 goes on to tell us the means in which we are to walk, the, the manner of which we are to walk. We are to walk with all humility, meaning we regard one another as more important than ourselves, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, meaning that for each of us, we're not always the easiest people to get along with. And we have people within the body of Christ who are not always easy to get along with. But the call here is not to pick and choose who you will love. The call here is to bear one another, showing tolerance with one another. And then the priority is this in verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And notice he said preserve the unity, which means this is a unity that was already created by the spirit. This is a unity that was created by the spirit through the work of Christ. And it's up for us to it's up to us to preserve it. We can either preserve it or we can let it fracture. And if we have let it fractured, we must do what we can to bring it back to its state, bring it back to its prior state uh, that the Spirit had brought it into. And so this idea of being diligent is that we make every effort. And to preserve the unity of the Spirit is going to take work on our part. And that this unity of the Spirit is bounded by a peace. When it says, in the bonds of peace at the end of verse 3, that is a peace created by Christ. But then we go to verse 4, and then Paul starts to reinforce the basis of our unity with seven divine realities. With seven commonalities that we all share with one another. Right from verse 4 all the way through verse 6, you see seven commonalities that we all share with one another. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And with these seven realities, we see that we are not united just for the sake of unity, but we are united on the basis of truth. And I've said this before, but these seven realities, each of these seven realities are greater and more common, more greater and more important commonalities that you share with one another than anything you can share with a secular person that does not believe in Christ. You may have grown up with someone. You may have gone to school with someone. You may have lived right across the street from someone your entire life and known that person for decades. But if you're a believer and that person is not a believer, you have more in common with each person in Christ here than you do with that person across the street. You may share a same love for the same sports team or enjoy watching the same shows or the same movies. You may even think alike, talk alike, 
But if that person is not in Christ and you are, you have more important things in common with the people here than you do with that person that you share those hobbies with. And so we want to be sure that we are emphasizing this unity, that we understand the basis of this unity. And two weeks ago, we looked at verse 4, and the first three commonalities, the first three divine commonalities that we all share, one is that we function in the same body. There is one body. We all function in the same body of Christ. We don't function with believers from other religions. We don't function with false believers. We function within a body that proclaims Christ, that is saved through the work of Christ. And then it mentions one spirit. And the second truth was that we are led by the same spirit. And we talked about the very many ministries that the Holy Spirit provides to us. For instance, the Holy Spirit illumines the text to you. The Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts to each and every one of you. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. The Holy Spirit helps us produce fruit of salvation. And the Holy Spirit, amongst many other things, makes us into a dwelling place of God. So the Holy Spirit has many ministries to us, and we all, if we are in Christ, have that Holy Spirit operating within us. And then the third reality at the end of verse 4 is that we all share the same hope. And we had talked about the difference between a worldly hope and a biblical hope. See, a worldly hope is uncertain. But a biblical hope is absolutely certain, even though it has not happened. And we share that hope that Jesus Christ will return. We share that hope that we will be in eternity with God forever. In glorified bodies, in perfect fellowship and in perfect praise and worship of our Lord and Savior for all eternity. That is something we can look forward to. And that's important because no matter what trials we go through today, that hope will sustain us. That hope will push us through. Well, that covered the first three divine realities, as you see right up there on the board. We function in the same body. We are led by the same spirit. We share the same hope. And now we get to point number four which is that we follow the same Lord. We follow the same Lord. And as we take a look once again at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, the next item on the list is one Lord. And believe it or not, this morning's sermon will be completely devoted to those two words. This is a very important point, and I think this is a perfect segue from our Christmas message last week when I talked about how Jesus Christ came that we would worship him. When we see that there is one Lord, first, I want you to know that Lord is the most common title used for Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. It is the most common word used for Jesus Christ. In this letter of Ephesians, it's used 23 times alone. Now, by comparison, we often refer to Jesus Christ as both both Lord and Savior, right? He is Lord and Savior. But in this letter of Ephesians, Lord is mentioned 23 times. Savior is only mentioned once. In fact, if you were to count the word Savior throughout all the New Testament, all the New Testament books, you would find it 24 times. Whereas just in this book of Ephesians, we see Lord 23 times. You think the authors of the New Testament are trying to emphasize something about Jesus Christ? He is indeed Lord. Now, what's clear as we look at this, We can all say that we have the same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We would only call him Lord. There is only one head of the church. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one Savior who died for us. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this same Lord, this same Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who has ascended up into heaven and sits right now at God's right hand, ruling from heaven, from up above. So we can look at that and say, yeah, we all affirm one Lord and that there is only one person that fills this role. But this word conveys something far more powerful. It conveys something far more significant far more important. And when we take the Old Testament into account, and we're going to take a look at some of the Old Testament passages this morning, we'll see just how important this word was to Jews like Paul and the other disciples, most of the authors of the New Testament. So let me take you back to Exodus and back to Exodus and the burning bush incident where God first called Moses into Israel, into Egypt. Sorry, when God called Moses into Egypt to deliver the Israelites. We'll look specifically at Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And you can just read along with me. Verse 10 says this. This is the Lord. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So that's the initial call. Moses, go into Egypt so that you may be able to bring out my people from Egypt. And then verse 11, we know the protest from Moses. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And verse 12, this is his response. And he said, certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now, where were they at this point? They were at Mount Sinai. They were at Mount Horeb. So when Moses goes and delivers the Israelites out of Egypt, they would return back to that mountain, and that's where they would receive the Ten Commandments. So this is the call from God. You're to deliver them and bring them back to this mountain where they will worship me. And then continuing on to verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And then verse 14, God said to Moses, and this is that statement that has echoed forward for eternity. He said, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this word for I am, we'll talk about that in a moment, but I want you to keep this in mind, that this is a very important name of God. And in verse 15, we continue on. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. So this is a special name that the Lord has established. But this word does not necessarily mean what we think it means. Let's zoom in on verse 15. Take a look at verse 15. We just read this, but you'll notice that I have underlined the word, the Lord. And if whether you're looking at it in your Bible or whether you're looking at it on the screen, you'll notice that the word Lord is in all capital letters. Do you notice that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is not just the regular name for Lord in the Hebrew. We'll talk about the regular word for Lord in a moment. But that is a special name of God. That's why to just say the Lord, it's a little misleading. In fact, I'll show you what it is in the Hebrew and how it's pronounced. So we we have what's called the Tetragrammaton. 
And uh, you'll see up on the slide right there in Hebrew letters, you don't have to memorize this, you don't have to know this, you're not going to be tested on that. That's what it looks like in the Hebrew. This is what we call the tetragrammaton. And it's called the tetragrammaton, that's Greek for just the four letters. And in Hebrew, let me just explain this, in the Hebrew language, there are no vowels. It's all consonants. It's all consonants. So what are those four letters? Those four letters in the English would be transliterated to Y-H-W-H. And you'll see it come up here, Y-H-W-H. And those four letters, when you put the sound of A after the Y and E after the W, you get the name Yahweh. Yahweh. Now, there is another common name used for God instead of Yahweh, and we actually just sang it this morning because the German pronunciation would pronounce the Y like a J and the W like a V. And so that's why we also have J-H-V-H, and in this case, people in the Middle Ages, this is when this name came up, people in the Middle Ages interpreted this as J-H-V-H, and they interpreted the vowels differently to be Jehovah rather than Yahweh. My point is this, this name, Yahweh or Jehovah, this is a special name that's only given to God alone. This is not a name given to false gods. This is not a name assigned to any other God of any other false religion, but rather it is the name of the true God of the true religion of the Israelites. He is the God of Israel. In fact, uh, archaeologically speaking, they have found inscriptions on artifacts dated from 5th century to 9th century B.C. 19 inscriptions with this name Yahweh. And every single time it referred to the God of Israel. Every single time it referred to the God of Israel. Now let me, let's go ahead and take a look one more time at Exodus 3, specifically two verses. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. We read this, but we'll take a look at this again. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this was in response to Moses' question. Moses had asked, what's, what's his name? What's the name of our God? And God responded, I am who I am. And it sounds like that answer almost sounds like he's blowing, blowing off Moses' answer. But then he goes on in verse 15 to say, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, meaning Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now I want you to understand that in the Hebrew, the name Yahweh means I am and I continue to be. There is actually that meaning in the name Yahweh. He's not simply blowing off Moses' question, but he's actually identifying himself as being the eternal I am. He is emphasizing his eternal existence and his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not only eternal, but he is never changing, and he is always faithful to what he promises to do. So thus what we see, the Lord is a name and not a title. And you'll see that come on the screen in just a moment. It's a name, not a title. Yahweh, which is translated in English as the Lord, means I am and I continue to be. His name conveys his eternal being and faithfulness. But that's one word that is often translated as Lord. And as you can see, that's not just the normal name for it. That's just not the normal title for Lord, but rather it's a name. It's a name given to God. Now, there is actually a word for Lord, and it is a different word. And this is best illustrated in Psalm 110. So let me show you Psalm 110, verse 1. 
And I know this is a technical discussion. I'm taking through a lot of detailed points, but I guarantee you this will be worth it. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now you'll notice that the first Lord has all capital letters. That is what? That is Yahweh. That is the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. But notice the second Lord only has a capital L, and the rest of it is lowercase. That is a different Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Adonai, and that literally means Lord or Master. So this is why it gets a little bit confusing. You have two words that say Lord, but in the Hebrew they mean different things. The first Lord is a special name that belongs only to the God of Israel. And the second is merely a title of authority. It's a title of authority that can often be used with God. But it is not the name of God. And so as we pull up the next note here, the Lord in all uppercase, the Lord in all uppercase, that is Yahweh and that is a name. Whereas the Lord with mixed case, that is either Adon or Adonai. And that is a title of authority. That is a title of authority. And both, this is where it's going to get a little bit more confusing, both, when translated into the Greek, is translated as the same word, kurios. Kurios. So both translate into the Greek as kurios. In the English, it just shows as Lord, and I have it in the Greek in the white block there, um, if you're interested, but you don't need to know that. That's just for your background information. So both words are translated into one word in the Greek. So let me summarize this with this graph. So I have this little graph here. On the left side, you have Hebrew. On the right side, you have Greek. And on the left side, we have first that name of Yahweh, which is Lord. And then we also have the title, Adonai, which also means Lord, but with the lowercase O-R-D. And both of them translate to the same word in Greek, which is kurios, which means Lord. So what I'm saying is that there are two distinct words in the Hebrew, but in the Greek, it's translated into the same word. Now, the final note I have here is that the word Lord is applied to Jesus consistently throughout the New Testament. I had mentioned this before, but it shows up 23 times in the letter of Ephesians alone. So we have a little bit of confusion here because both words are translated the same into Greek, which brings up the question, when you read your New Testament and you see the word Lord, how do we know that it's referring to a title or whether it's referring to the name of God? Well, that's a contextual question. It has to be determined by context. And this, by the way, becomes the key question when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see references to the Lord Jesus Christ, is Lord just merely meant as a title of authority? Or is it meant as the Old Testament name for the God of Israel? And that's the big question. If you've ever talked to Jehovah's Witnesses, this is where the sticking point is. Because Jehovah's Witnesses, they will claim that Jesus Christ is not on the same level as God the Father. They will claim, yeah, he's Lord, he's our authority, but he's not the absolute authority. They will say that he is of a lesser essence, that he is not to be worshipped, that he does not share that same status with God the Father. But I'm going to prove to you that Jesus Christ is indeed Yahweh. Jesus Christ is indeed that name of God established in the Old Testament. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And this is going to be a very familiar passage because we know about John the Baptist. John, John the Baptist was the forerunner, right? John the Baptist would come, would come, and he is the one that would prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the Christ. 
And this is important because what we see here, what John the Baptist is going to proclaim, this is mentioned in all four Gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew, it's mentioned in Mark, it's mentioned in Luke, and it's mentioned in John. All four of them mention this quotation from John the Baptist. So we read in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness in Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. And in verse 3, he says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, in this case, as you're looking at the New Testament quotation, Lord is in all caps, but really the entire quotation is in all caps. That's a normal thing in the New Testament. When it quotes the Old Testament, it'll put the Old Testament verse in all capital letters. But the last time I had a conversation with Jehovah's Witness, I took them to many verses. I made many arguments about who Jesus Christ was, but I took them to this passage. And I said, let's take a look at what John the Baptist says. Because when he says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and he says, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Who is John the Baptist referring to? Who is it that he's preparing the way for? What's the obvious answer? Jesus, right? And they affirmed that. Of course, it's Jesus Christ. That's who he's paving the way for. Well, if your Bible has a cross reference, you'll see that the cross reference, this is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And this is why understanding the difference between the name and the title matters. Because when we go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, let's take a look at that. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Here it is from the prophet Isaiah. He says, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what's very interesting is that this prophecy from Isaiah, when he says, clear the way for the Lord, is this the Lord, the name, or the Lord, the title? Is it in all caps or is it mixed cased? It's all caps. That means this is the name of the Lord. That means this is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. Isaiah is making this prophecy that in the future, a forerunner will come and say, clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. And so when we look at that passage in Matthew, or we look at that passage in any of the four Gospels, and Elijah and John the Baptist is is quoting, John the Baptist is quoting this verse. He is clearly referring to Jesus Christ, but what people miss is that he is referring to Jesus Christ as Yahweh. He is Yahweh in human flesh coming to bring salvation. And Jesus himself made this claim. It wasn't just from John the Baptist. Let's take a look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. There are many confrontations between Jesus and the Jews. You know, a lot of people portray Jesus as just wanting to bring love and peace. But if you read his ministry, he did not bring peace to Jerusalem. He brought peace through salvation, but in terms of his behavior, in terms of how he was confronting the Jewish leaders, in terms of how he was standing for the truth, he was very divisive by some standards. But look at John chapter 8. This is a conversation happening between Jesus and the Jews. And starting in verse 56, Jesus says to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Verse 57, this is the incredulous reply. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. I mean, by this time, Jesus was about 30, a little bit over 30, maybe. 
and Abraham was, had existed centuries past, going way, way back. And in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What do you think Jesus Christ was claiming? What he was claiming was unmistakable, and the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. You know how I say that? Look at verse 59. Verse 59 says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew that he was claiming to be Yahweh. They knew he was claiming to be the God of Israel, and they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. So we see that Jesus Christ is the great I Am. But let's take a look at another verse, this time written by Paul from Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. And we see, see, starting in verse 9, we read this. For this reason also God highly exalted him, being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's another Old Testament quotation here. In verse 10, when he says, every knee will bow, take a look. This is coming from Isaiah 45, verse 23. Isaiah 45, verse 23. This is the Lord God addressing Israel, saying, gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Verse 21, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. You see the emphasis from God that only he is Yahweh. Only he is God. Only he can save. And we continue on in verse 22. Verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Once again, emphasizing the exclusivity of who God is. Nobody is God except the God of Israel. And then verse 23 says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And who is it that is speaking here? This is Yahweh. Paul references this verse in relation to Jesus Christ and says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is the Savior. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved. He is also the supreme authority. He is our Savior but he is also the supreme authority. And now we take a look at one more proof passage here. We'll go to the very end of the book of Matthew. We'll look at this very familiar statement from our Lord. We know this is the Great Commission. And it feels like almost every single sermon I end up quoting these verses because these verses are so rich. They communicate so much. 
And when I talked about Jesus having ultimate authority, Jesus being Yahweh, Jesus being the great I am, Jesus being the source of salvation, look at verse 18. This is the very end of the book of Matthew. Remember, Matthew was written to the Jews. It was written to the Jews to prove that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Does that sound like someone who has lesser authority than God the Father? All authority has been given to me. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may look at this and say, well, Yahweh was referring to God the Father in the Old Testament, but now you're saying Yahweh refers to God the Son. So which is it? Does it refer to God the Father or God the Son? And the answer is yes. Because what we see here in verse 19, it says, go and make disciples of all the nations, but you are to baptize them. And to baptize them in what? In the name, singular. In this singular name that is shared by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They share the same name. One name, three persons. But there are implications to calling him Lord. There are implications to calling Jesus Christ Yahweh. There are implications to us being saved and now proclaiming him as our shepherd, as our Lord and Savior. Because verse 20 says that you are to teach them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ, you see his authority being proclaimed, said all authority has been given to him. You see the special name that he shares with God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit. Oh, sure. The word Trinity never shows up in the Bible, but verses like this shows us That God, who says there is no other, he shares his name with the Son and the Spirit. And we see that there are implications to us being saved by Jesus Christ, that we are being called to observe all that Jesus Christ had commanded to us. And that leads to a warning, a warning from also from Matthew. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23 Matthew 7, 21, Matthew writes, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Lord, Lord. Now, I told you that both words for Lord in the Hebrew were both translated to the same word in Greek. There is very good reason to believe that when here Jesus says, Lord, Lord, the idea is both Yahweh and Adonai. Not everyone who calls me Yahweh Adonai or Yahweh the Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, simply proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, simply proclaiming that Jesus is your Lord and Savior is not what's going to get you into heaven. It has to be a real belief in him. It has to be a real commitment that leads to real fruit. I'm not saying that you can work for your salvation. You cannot. Only faith will earn your salvation. But there is a difference between a false faith and a true faith. A true saving faith leads to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 22, he goes on. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These are some supernatural acts being performed here. 
In other words, there are people that proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and they're prophesying in his name. And in his name, they're casting out demons. And in his name, they're performing many miracles. That should be a warning that even if we see people do supernatural things, it does not mean they were sent by God. And by the way, we are actually not commanded to do any of those three things. You realize that? Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to cast out demons. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to perform miracles. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to prophesy. But these are things that people do. And not only that, but notice that as they're appealing to the Lord, they're appealing to the Lord on the basis of their works, what they have done. I can tell you for me personally, in that time when Jesus Christ returns, when he calls me up into his presence, and I am, if I am asked the question, why should I be allowed to be in heaven with Jesus Christ the Lord and God my Father? It's not going to be because I preach from this pulpit. It's not going to be because any of the counseling or the Bible studies I've been involved in. It's not because of any of the missions trips I've been on around the world, across the oceans and whatnot. It's not going to be for any works that I've done. The reason why I have a claim to heaven is because I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for my sins. And that by it, he is my Lord and Savior. But for those who make these claims, those who proclaim the Lord falsely, verse 23, this is going to be the response from Jesus Christ to them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it's not on a basis of what you just simply proclaim with your mouth. It's not on a basis of who you think you know, but whether Jesus Christ, our Lord, knows you. Whether he knows you as someone that he has really died for on the cross. Whether you are someone that are now convicted to follow him and to do his will. That is the mark of salvation. Now that brings us back to the original passage in Ephesians. Taking a look once again at Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Now what's clear in looking at the one Lord, we have the same Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same head of the church. We have the same Savior who died for each and every one of us. The same Lord who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and is ruling from up on high. We all share that in common. And the reason why I went through all these passages, because I want to emphasize that this one Lord has tremendous and powerful meaning throughout the Bible. This is not merely just to say that he is the head of the church, that he is our savior, that he has ascended up on high. But this is also to say that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is almighty God. He shares the same name with God the Father. He is the one that came in human flesh in order to die for our sins. And may I say, if you're here this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me take this moment to share with you that the cost is simple confession. You confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that he died for your sins, that you would repent of your sins. You may remember from that passage out of Isaiah, God said, turn to me, turn to me and be saved. The call for us is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn away from your sins. You turn away and repent from them. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. None of us here are perfect. Amen? We continue to struggle. All of us do. 
But it means that you are now walking in a new direction. You're now walking with a new hope. You have a different Lord than you had before. Whereas maybe you had called your own shots, or maybe friends of yours called the shots, or maybe you followed after other figures of this world, other false religious figures who cannot bring salvation. The call now is to recognize that there is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to God the Father, and that is through our Lord, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that, he, and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You make that confession, make that commitment, and you will have salvation. And do not leave this morning without talking to one of us, talking to one of me or, or one of the deacons. In fact, deacons and their wives, will you please stand up for a moment? Deacons and, and your wives. Okay, we've got a few spread out uh, through the audience. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, please seek out one of them or seek me. But do not leave without talking to us about your spiritual condition. This is the single most important decision you can ever make in your entire life. And second place is not even close. It's not even close. Because there will come a time when this Lord, when this Yahweh will return. You see, the first time he came in order to die for the sins of those who would believe in him. The second time he comes, he will come in judgment. And the question when he comes back is whether he is your Lord and Savior or whether he is going to be your judge. And you don't want to be on the wrong end of that. So we see here that this word Lord, it conveys something far more powerful than just someone that we follow, just a mere master, just a mere title. This name only belonged to the God of Israel. And it means that Jesus carries the same authority and name as God the Father. Now, as we look at our main takeaways for this morning, here's what I would recommend for you. Consider what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. Consider what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. We say that very loosely, very casually, but having understood now what that word means, hopefully there's an increased awe and reverence that comes forth from us as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior. There is no other supreme authority. No one else can be considered the great I Am. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So hopefully you get a sense of just how important and just how exalted and just how authoritative and just how exclusive our Lord Jesus Christ is and how powerful he is. And consider the unity that we have because of Christ. He is the reason that we have the body of Christ. Remember the first three points we had were one body, one spirit, and one hope. Well, he is the reason we have the body. He is the reason why we have been given the Spirit. He is the reason why we have our hope in the future. You know, many years ago, back in 2007, when I was first saved, at that time I was running a lot of half marathons. And I remember shortly after my salvation, um, me and actually Sally as well, my friend who's here, we were both part of a 200-mile relay from uh, Calistoga to Santa Cruz, I think. Yes, Calistoga to Santa Cruz. 200 miles, 12 of us. Each of us had three legs, and it took, uh, we, and we were running all day, all night. It was absolutely crazy. Now, why would we do that? We did that in order to raise awareness for organ donations, to raise awareness for organ donations. And that's a good cause. I mean, that's something that I believe in, my wife believes in. You know, it, whenever that time comes that the Lord calls me, I would gladly give up my organs to anyone who needs it if they're still any good. 
Um, but um, this was to raise awareness for organ donations. And it was amazing because when you talk about a 200-mile relay, there are so many volunteers spread throughout. At every single handoff point, there were just dozens and dozens of volunteers. I mean, it was amazing just how many people were serving. And as I got to talk to some of the volunteers, it was amazing the reason also why they were volunteering. And when you hear the reason, it's not going to be surprising. You see, for each and every one of the volunteers that I spoke to, each one of them were volunteering because either they had lost a loved one because of a failed organ or because a loved one was saved because someone donated an organ. In other words, these were people whose eyes were open to the importance of having a do- an organ, that an organ, having an organ transplant can provide you from deliverance from your current ailments in this world, especially if your organ fails. But there is a greater reality as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, because while this may provide deliverance for those with failed organs, it is only temporal. You see, the real salvation, the real deliverance that we need is eternal. You see, what all of these people came to understand was just how fragile life was. And that is something that we all must cherish, that this life is fragile, but is fragile for a reason. It's in order to remind us that our life is meant for us to consider the next life, to consider what happens after death, to consider why we die, which is, a, which is the curse that God placed upon this world. Death is not just a part of our natural cycle of life. It is cursed from God because of our sin. And that's why we needed this Lord. That's why those of you who have confessed Jesus Christ are in this church. You have that in common with one another. This Lord, having this Lord in common is more important than anything else in this world that you could possibly share in common. And so that final point I would bring up is cherish one another because all of us follow one Lord. That should be the greatest and most important commonality that any two people can have. Let's pray.